I want you to take your Bible and join me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. My, my uh, message this morning is the product of something that I did not really intend to speak on until the latter part of this week. Had a great time in Israel, and I'll talk more about that tonight. But just to say, one of the things that really struck me about going to Israel this time was it was a really, really large group. There were probably a hundred of us that were, you know, getting in buses and getting off buses. And, and uh, I'm glad my group was only about nine of us. Uh, we almost lost Celia at the airport, and that was all my fault. <laughs> but uh, we made sure to keep an eye on everybody um, going forward from there. But it was nice, I'll be honest with you, it was nice to just kind of uh, blend into the crowd um, and just observe and listen and hear the heartbeat of that country. Our tour guide was one of the most amazing minds that I've met. Um, he was one of the uh, curators for the first Holocaust Museum. His parents were a uh, victim in the Holocaust and lost a lot of family. And uh, Rafi, our tour guide, was the person who wrote the book of psychology on Holocaust um, survivors and how they bury what happened and how recently things have come to light. I've been to Yad Vashem over there, the Holocaust Museum. I went in 2018, uh, a very, very, very graphic museum. And that was one of the things that he talked about, the curation of telling the whole story of what happened with the Holocaust. The way Yad Vashem actually works is it forces you forward. You really can't go off to the side and go to a different exhibit or kind of meander around like a museum normally is. It, it forces you through it uh, until you get to the end and when it opens up over a very beautiful landscape. And, but uh, Rafi had a lot of working knowledge about these different places. And one of the places which I'll talk about tonight was in Capernaum. And there's a fourth century temple there um, that was built on top of the temple that Jesus went into, and he pronounced a curse upon that area because of all the works that he had done and how they, they did not receive him. He said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment day for than the area of Capernaum because of the rejection of light that they had received. And you know, this was probably the second day of, the, of our trip, and we had just gotten off of a beautiful boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Really, that whole area, the Sea of Galilee, um, Tiberias, all those different things, that's the highlight for me, um, because there's, there's, so much of, there's so much ministry that was done right there. The disciples were called into discipleship on the Sea of Galilee, and when you see it, it's absolutely massive. It, you know, we're, we're here in Florida, we're used to little lakes you know, ponds and stuff. We're looking once, we're looking twice for that alligator that's going to come and take us under. But I mean, there, it's just a totally different thing. And when you realize the importance of the Sea of Galilee, you see how, you see all the comparisons to Christ starting his ministry there and, and how important water is to the region. If you want to survive in the desert, you need water. You can't do it any other way. And one of the places that we saw, Caesarea Maritime or Caesarea by the Sea, has the remnants of an aqueduct that was miles and miles long, built by Herod, um, who made sure that water got to the area. You see the importance of water in the ritual cleansing before you can go into the temple. But water is life. If you do not have water in the desert, you, you will not have life. And so to be on the Sea of Galilee and see these different things was amazing. But to be in that fourth century, uh, or that, uh, that very, very early temple, and to realize that just underneath this, Christ walked and gave these, these words, you realize the significance of the temple that was built on top of it. And that was originally what I was going to talk to you about today, about how there was a shadow of things to come in the Old Testament. And Hebrews is a wonderful book to talk about those things point by point. And then Jesus came, and he, he came, and he, his, his offer to begin the kingdom was legitimate, and he was rejected by the Jewish people. He was rejected by the world. He switches the tone of his ministry to say, my hour is not yet come. Now he's introducing his hour, which is he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die for sin. And then the last part of his ministry is, mine hour is come. And he's offered up. He goes through the trial, and he is ultimately crucified on the cross. But he rises again three days later. And he was seen among 500 brethren at once, 1 Corinthians tells us, for 40 days. And he ministered, and he, he prepared the disciples, and then he ascended up into heaven. And then the world was just turned upside down. 
when Pentecost happened and the explosion of the gospel message and the birth of the church began in Acts chapter 2. We go all the way through until martyrdom begins. And that was, we've seen in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, who was a deacon, by the way, gave his message and lost his life as a result of it. Saul, before he was Paul, was holding the coats at the stoning of Stephen. And it's important to see as from that point forward, as we advanced into time, we got back in the shadows again. We got back in the shadows again. And that temple that we walked into, it was a Hellenistic temple. It was created by uh, Helena to just unite the whole church and there's customs and we get uh, Orthodox, the Orthodox Church from that, the Roman Catholic Church from that. And we've gone from the shadow of the sacrifices in the Old Testament to the real thing in Christ. And then we're back in the shadows again. Sometimes if we're not careful, we become very ritualistic. Uh, that's just the nature of man. And there's illustrations all throughout the scripture and people build their religion and build their lives to the illustration. What's the earliest illustration that we can see in the Old Testament? Well, it's that coats of skins in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember, Adam and Eve sinned. They became aware of their nakedness. And as a result of that, they took fig leaves, sewed them together to make adequate clothing. The curses are then given by God, first to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. And the whole earth now is under a curse. And the last thing that God does, and this is the last time of real fellowship that he can have between God and man, is he provides them an adequate covering. And so now that word atonement comes into play. And you see Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and the importance of the priest and all the things that he has to prepare to make sure that he is in the right position to offer that atonement before the people. You see how Moses and Aaron and Abraham and Isaac and Jake, all these different patriarchs all came through until we get to King David. And King David is, is seeing the house in which he dwells, but the Lord dwells in a tabernacle of cedar. And so he desires to build a temple. And so now that tabernacle, which was kind of a, it was a tent, so to speak, is now erected into a beautiful temple that is built by Solomon. Then, of course, that is destroyed, brought into Babylonian captivity, and then Nehemiah comes back, and he, he, he attempts to build that land again. But then King Herod builds that temple to be, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. And we have the Temple Mount today that we can walk on and know that Christ was in these areas, but then that was also destroyed in 70 AD. And so ever since then, the Jews have been trying to get back to the point where they can get those sacrifices going again. They're, they are looking for that third temple. In the old city of Jerusalem, when we were walking around, we got to see the, the, the menorah that they will use in the temple. It's constructed of solid gold. Don't worry about anybody stealing it, because like I said, it's constructed of solid gold. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. They do have a plexiglass case over it. But it's amazing to see all the preparations that they're doing, but you see that the Jewish people, God's people, they're still stuck. They're still stuck in the shadows. But as I was getting ready to prepare that message for you, I had a very difficult week, I'll be very honest with you. There were a lot of things that were going on with my health that were just, if, if anything, I think the best way to describe it was annoying. I, I, I come back, I'm excited to get ready to minister, I'm excited to get ready to talk to you and and to get back into my role as your pastor, but my health stopped me from doing that. And then just a lot of discouragement came from things that had happened that you'll probably never see, but just difficulties that make you sit down. And I began to ask myself, am I doing the best that I can with, with the opportunities that are given to me? And a lot of you don't see this, but there's a lot of discouragement that comes with being in ministry. And I'm in no way pointing the finger at you because it has nothing to do with you. It's just the nature of the work that we do as pastors. I've seen a lot of things written online from people that are starting to realize how corporate church is becoming. Uh, sometimes you hear the pastor say, make an appointment, you've got a schedule with me, and then all of a sudden it becomes very corporate. It's like, well, you know, we only have this amount of time, and well, we can only do it on this day, and, and it becomes transactional. You come, show up, I give, and you receive, and then that's it. We don't think about ministry together until the next time the doors are open and it's time to think about those things again. 
And as I was sitting in my office, and as I was driving home and driving back to work, and as I was preparing for classes, the Lord put this message on my heart more and more and more each day. And I decided to switch what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. And I want to talk to you about those two words that are up there on the screen, looking up. Now, you and I know these verses because of the implication that Dr. Hank Lindstrom had always said, keep looking up, Jesus Christ is coming soon. But my message today has nothing to do with prophecy. I'm not going to use the rapture as a method of encouragement to you this morning. I want to talk about looking up and the importance of looking to Christ for everyday life. You know, we here at Calvary Community Church have been extremely, extremely blessed with ministers that have been set for the defense of the gospel. Because the gospel message is under attack, and I don't have to tell you uh, that that is true. You're looking around today, and, and some of the most prominent videos on the internet right now around Christianity are going around a revival that as more and more has come out, you find out it's not a movement that's rooted in anything that's godly. And there's now this temptation to come out very strongly against people who are just doing what they're led to do. And if we're not careful, folks, we can really, really build an island that we all live on. And all of a sudden, we look at the world, which is thousands of miles away, and say, how in the world do we reach them? But we're the ones that put ourselves on an island. And we've got to be careful that we do not lose the importance of love in the way that we communicate to the world around us. I've got three points for you today in my message called Looking Up. The first point is love, the motivation for movement. And you're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Will you join me in verse 1? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. A couple things I want to point out to you here. First of all, when you see that King James word for love, it is charity. Okay, And that's why if you do a word search on love, you're trying to prepare a message on love, and you go, where's 1 Corinthians 13? I don't see it. That's because it uses the word charity in preference of the word love. But the second thing I want you to see here is that, that description, sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the music of John Williams, but he's a fantastic composer and has really composed iconic soundtracks for all types of film. And one of the things that I love the most in John Williams' uh, you know, albums is the fanfare for the Olympics. And if you can think of it right now, there's a lot of crashing drums in the beginning, and you hear that bum, bum, ba-dum, bum, 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 ba-dum, bum. What's the next thing? You've got brass that, duh, but the, you, if you take the brass away, there is a guy back there who has two symbols, one in his left and one in his right, and he is waiting for the very moment to come in at the right time. And if he does not come in at the right time, if you take that symbol out, it falls flat. It doesn't have as much power as it should. The comparison here is when you've got symbols in your hand, you're not going like this. Ding, 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 ding. Look at me. Look at these big things. Look at this little noise that I'm making. Hey, pay attention. That's like someone trying to get people's attention and they're like, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, hello. You, you need a booming voice. You need big waving hands. You know, hello, hello. You want to get people's attention. The comparison here as sounding brass is brass that should sound at a certain level, but it's lacking. And then also as a tinkling cymbal, it, it, it doesn't have the effect that it should. And what meets this description? You and I, when we do not have love, when we are loveless, when we carry a message of love in a vessel of hate, we, we can be useless. And verse 2 says that. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains... I think I want you to see the significance of this statement here because Jesus said earlier in the Gospels, if you have faith that is the size of a mustard seed, check out a mustard seed, by the way. Make sure you don't lose it or crush it because it's incredibly tiny. If we had that much, we could move mountains. And what Paul is saying here is you've got much more faith at that that you could literally remove them, not just position them away, but they're gone. You have that much faith. You have all that, that, that knowledge. You have all the gifts that you would need but what does he say? And have not charity, I am nothing. And then verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me 
nothing. And then the rest of the chapter tells you what love is and what love is not. But I think one of the things that we can do as people who are defenders of the gospel is we can become so defensive that we're cold and calloused and removed from the people in which we're trying to reach. Now, there's, there's two groups that you're going to interact with for the, for the rest of your life. The first group is the group that you came out of, the lost. The people who are not even seeking. They're living their lives. I mean, can you, can you see today how we are in the days of Noah? How, how you can just see that everybody just, they, they do what they want. We have need of very, very little. And our wants abound. Now that's here in this country of America. But around the rest of the world, those freedoms are being choked. And people are losing their ability to be able to have electricity in their homes. To get normal food for their groceries. Some of the things that have been going on politically um, have showed us how this nation is, is really headed toward a financial crisis. Uh, a financial crisis that is solely resting upon our nation's debt. Folks, you can only print so much. Sometimes I, I, I want to think about going to Burns Steakhouse. You know, y'all know Burns? I've never been there. And you probably know why, because it's way too rich for my taste. But can you imagine if you went to Burns Steakhouse and you had the ability to print money? And you're just standing there and the, you know, the waiter comes and they have the bill, which is you know, $10 billion. And, you're, and you just get out this little machine and you put in a number and all the money that they'll ever need. How much do you want? Okay, sure. Boom, 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 boom. At some point, that, that dollar is going to lose value. And a lot of the financial analysts that are looking into the future, the future that our kids are going to live in, things are going to change. The things that we have taken so, so readily and freely will not be that way for our children and for our grandchildren. So what are we to do about it? We're living in people. We're, we're, we're living in a world with lost people. We're going to have to, we've come out of that because we put faith in Christ, but we have to still be in that world to reach more and more people. That's the first category. Then the second category is believers, like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to have to deal with one another as well. The Bible tells us in at least three places to forbear one another. And the way that it says to forbear is in love. I want to read to you things that were said by Jesus Christ about love. Follow along with me as, as we go through this. Um, we're not going to turn to the verses, but if you have your uh, bulletin on the back, there's a note section, and I would encourage you to write down these references. Matthew 5.44 says this, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. It breaks my heart to say that the church, many churches today, would disagree with that statement. They would say, but you don't know how wicked they are. But they'll never put their faith in Christ. My friends, I, I, I want to tell you with all the love in the world, Jesus told us to love our enemies. And so I think it would be smart if we did that, if we learned to do it. It's hard to do it when you have a heart that's calloused. When you have a heart that is so covered over in hateful, you know, whatever it may be, whatever you've chosen to believe is acceptable treatment of another person, that's what you're going to do. The next verse here is Matthew 19, 19, which says, Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one to another. The hallmark, the stamp, the evidence, so to speak, of a obedient Christ follower, not someone that's saved, but as someone who has put their faith in Christ and they're following in the steps of discipleship, is not faithful attendance in church. It's not faithful replies in a prayer meeting. It's not soul winning. It's love. That's the mark. 
And I think because sometimes we are so set on the defense of Scripture, we lose the love for the audience to which we're trying to win. That first group in which we're called out of. We forget who they are. John 14, 23 says, If a man love me, he will keep my words. Let me read to you the words of Christ again from Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Those are the words of Christ. If we love him, we should keep those words. John 15, 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We can be set to the defense of the gospel and hate people at the same time. We can use godly words in a cruel tone. We can have a church that is wide open, but our hearts are locked up. In this way, we become useless and profitless to the lost man and eventually to one another. It's only going to take time before we begin to attack, uh, attack each other. And do we see that today? One of the hallmarks, sadly, on the Bible-believing side of YouTube is the idea of tearing down one another. We have come under attack in this way on YouTube. It happened probably this time last year where because someone has a disagreement with how the Christian should live his Christian life, there was a whole onslaught, and folks, I mean an onslaught of videos, 40, 50, an hour long, destroying ministries that are all set to the clarity of the gospel. But because of one disagreement, we got to crash and burn the whole thing. You know what the lost man sees when they look at that? They see babies doing baby things. Take it from me. I got one of those at home. Babies do baby things. Let me lighten it up here for you just a moment. Remy is learning now how important it is to let us know when she wants something. It's, it's very, very important, and she has a way to do it. She's been sleeping through the night, and that's been fantastic. Thank you for your prayers. <laughs> My wife certainly says thank you and praise God. But when you pick her up first thing in the morning, after she does a bunch of, <laughs> which is letting you know, there needs to be a bottle in here. <laughs> Sir, ma'am, feed me. When you, if, if you pick her up and the bottle's not already mixed and the burp cloth is not already on your shoulder, if you set her down for just a second, it's not even, you know, the big, <gasps> and then the cry. It is immediate. It is immediate, and it is loud, and like her beautiful face turns very, very red. The eyebrows get entirely white, and she, ah! and you know, the neighbors, everything okay? Yeah, it's going great. <laughs> she knows exactly how to tell us what she needs. She, she can't say bottle or I'm hungry, but she can definitely cry in a certain way. And we know, and now it's getting to the point where when she cries, she does this little, you know, and it's like, man, it's cute. But at the same time, get the bottle, please get it ready. <laughs> Can you imagine if we grew up in a church that condoned that kind of behavior? When we look at the world, we just scream and holler in, in, in discontent. We don't learn how to grow up and, and, and handle the truth with also the fact that people are sinful. A lot of churches are like my daughter right now. They only know how to cry. They only know how to let you know that there's a problem, and even the pastor's equipped to do such a thing. But there's no love to reach one another. There's no love to share Christ with people. Why would you want to share the gospel if you hate the person you're talking to? And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I struggle with this callousness myself. And if there's a, a piece of encouragement that I want to give you, sometimes, guys, you have to turn off all the stuff. Just turn it off. 
Maybe if, if, if your TV is such a temptation, get a big blanket and cover that thing up. I told this to somebody. I was doing some uh, pre-marriage counseling with a couple, and I, we were talking about handling money. And I said, you know, credit cards, they can be a very, very good tool, but most of the time they're not a good thing. Instead of cutting them up, here's what we did. You take all your cards and you put them in individual Ziploc bags. You fill the bag all the way with water, make sure there's no air in there, and you put it in the freezer. So that when you look and see that brand new Apple i15000 Max Pro Plus Ultimate thing that you want, you literally have to go into the fridge, get the thing out, run it over hot water, and at some point you're going to go, what am I doing? There's a version of myself that put this away to avoid this version of myself. What am I trying to tell myself? (laughs) You go through steps. But I think a lot of times... And I, I think it can be said of us if we're not careful. And what I mean, what, what I mean by us is the ones who are here in our, this room right now. We don't have any barriers. We just hear something and we, we take it as truth and, and then we begin to hate the people that fit the description of what we've heard. We're not, I'm not here to tell you to, to tolerate sin. That's not my message. But do you love the lost man? Because you can have all the Bible knowledge in the world. You can come to church as often as the doors are open. But if you don't love, you have no profit. No profit to yourself, no profit to the world. I'm transitioning to my second point here, which is all things to all men. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you'll join me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 16. Paul, what a great, great, humble man. When I think of the Apostle Paul, I, I, I think of, obviously, the gospel, doctrinal, you know, great mind. But then the next words that come to my mind are humble, kind. I believe he was a kind man. And I see that here in this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16. Let's look at the heart of Paul. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Sometimes I... I'm moved to tears when I see people that are wrapped up in the false televangelist movement. It breaks my heart to see people beholden to a man or a woman and making them financially prosper when they're, they're, they're looking for God, but they have found a con artist. It, it, it breaks my heart. It's one of the reasons why I don't, I don't charge for weddings and I don't charge for funerals. And if a church were to ask me to come and speak, I have no fee, nothing. Because when I go to preach the gospel message, I want to have the heart of Paul. Which, what did he say? I have nothing to glory of. You want to see a trophy of God's grace? You look at the sinner. You look at the sinner that has been saved by that grace. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in you except Christ. We have to remember that. For necessity, the rest of verse 16 is laid upon me. Necessity to preach the gospel is laid upon Paul. It's his motivation. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And I don't think what he means here is just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news as a whole, it's a package deal, folks. What good is the street preacher if he's on the street corner and he doesn't preach the truth and he preaches separation between himself and his audience. I'm not a very educated man, but I remember in public speaking, it was important to know your audience. I'm not going to go to an established group of professors and teachers and scholars and say, hey, what up, Doug? How you doing, bro? Maybe language that would be appropriate in a youth meeting, but certainly I would not go and, and speak to a group of professionals in that way. Just like I'm not going to go to the Sunday school class in the back with five and six-year-olds and go, say it with me, propitiation, justification, <laughs> atonement, right? Let's spell that, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. Very, very good, good. Now, right? Like, you got to know your audience. You got to know who you're talking to. We have to make sure the words that we convey to people are taught in the motivation of love for them. I should get up here in this pulpit and teach in a way that conveys, I love you because God loves you. 
or else I'm just a, a, a symbol, just a little nuisance of no value to you, of no value to myself. Look what he says in verse 17, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. By the way, this is a great motivation, folks, that God will reward you for your work. Sometimes people don't like that because they have a little bit of a holier-than-thou complex, and that's okay. People haven't learned everything yet, but God has said you're going to be rewarded for the work that you do. Isn't that a good thing to know? Isn't it good that, it's not, that you're not looking at me to keep a hold of your rewards? I almost lost one of our people in the Tel Aviv airport. You don't want me doing anything taking care of your rewards and your service for the Lord, right? But you know who is keeping track of that? Your heavenly Father. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Then he makes this statement, which is where I'm landing on this second point here. For though I be free from all men, is Paul a free man? Yes, he is. He has no... He, he, he is not a slave to anybody. He's a free man because of Christ Jesus. But he, he uses that to say, yet have I made myself servant. Boy, if you want to look for a word outside of the word disciple that should adequately describe the mindset of a believer, it's a servant. I remember being a servant here at an Italian dinner. Loved that. I loved that memory. I don't know how many of you were around when that was going on, but the youth did a little Italian dinner in the back. And you know, super easy, pasta, chicken. We're not doing any of the cooking, of course, just the, just the beverages. <laughs> but I remember how important it was that I dressed appropriately, that I used appropriate behavior and mannerisms in the way that I served. But I developed that day. I can, I can bring you back to that fundraiser when I was a kid. I developed a real strong desire to just, I want to help people. That's what I want to do. And that has grown into where I stand right now, even though I'm in a physically elevated position over you, I want to serve you. And I want to do that in a way that is lovely and kind. It doesn't sacrifice the truth for the sake of your comfort. But I want you to know that even if I have to give you a tough word from time to time, and even though if the volume on the old voice box here gets high, it's not in any way a hateful thing towards you. I love you because God has already loved you. I see the beauty that is in His Word. And I've chosen to take the freedom with which I have to live my life and become a servant to all. And I want you to have that same desire. You won't have it, though, if you hate Him. It, it won't. It won't. It will feel unnatural because it's against what you're set up to do. Look what it says in verse 20. And unto the Jews, I became a Jew. That was pretty easy for Paul, if you remember his, his theory, if you remember the things that he went through. I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law as under the law. What did he mean by this? If you remember his discussion in Philippians chapter 3, he tells you all about the tribe that he came from. He tells you all about the things that he did, all his uh, accoutrements, so to speak. And what happened? He called all that dung. He considered every single thing that he put as a pride to himself. And he said, it's, it means nothing. It means nothing because he now has Christ. But when he's talking to the Jewish person, when he's trying to reach the Jewish person, he'll put himself in their world. Not to mean he does the things that they do, but he's able to gain some type of attention with them. For what purpose? So that they can be like, I like that guy, Paul. He's pretty cool. Know that people can trust Christ as a result. Verse 21, which is probably one of the most difficult verses in the entire epistle. To them that are without the law as without the law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. I don't want you to look at the complexity here. I want you to see very simply what it says. He's talking about Gentiles here. He's talking about those who are not under the law of Moses, meaning the law of Moses was not given directly to them. He needs to reach them too. Can I say very, very plainly, that's where the homosexual was in Paul's day? 
That's where the person who sacrificed children to false gods, that's where they were. Some of the hot-button issues in the world today, the agenda of, of, of the gender movement and abortion, I just mentioned those two things because when I see verse 21 here, I see that's where that kind of person was. They were without the law. And yet Paul said, I still have a responsibility to reach them. I still have a responsibility to bring them under the sounds of the gospel message. And folks, I want to say very strongly and very confidently so that there's no misunderstanding of what I mean. So is the same for us. We need to welcome the opportunity to reach people who are living a life of sin. They're not untouchables. They're not people that would say, oh, heaven forbid. They should be welcome and they should be heard, but they should be given the gospel message. And that doesn't mean we tolerate sin. But if we walk through our lives hating those people because of things that they've done, how much better are we? You know how many sins you committed that put Christ on the cross? Just one. It was only one. The Bible says in Revelation 21, 27 that one lie or an abomination keeps you out. You're not getting in, whether you're a liar or someone who works abomination. It's not going to happen. And then we have verse 22. To the weak became I as weak that I might what? Gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. And when we think of that word gospel, sometimes we, we remove the love that's in that message. We think about the technicality of the gospel, right? What is the gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's faith in Him. Yes, and that is what saves a person. But do you not see the love of God in the death of Christ? I've been preparing myself. By reading the crucifixion account, the, the crucifixion week, over and over and over, every day I'm looking at those passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, preparing for the most important time of the year when we meet for Resurrection Sunday. And my heart gets softer and softer and softer when I see the resolute commitment of my Savior to win my soul. One of the things that has just been striking me is in John chapter 18 when Jesus is being brought before the high priests. And it's all in secret. It's all done without the eyes of the people. And they ask Jesus to say who he claims to be, and Jesus very plainly speaks. And they, this one man, he took his hand and he smacked him in the mouth, just, just smacked him right in the face, struck him. A man who was not yet condemned guilty by that false trial and looks down on him and says, speak plainly to the high priest. Man, I think of that song he could have called 10,000 angels. I think about the definition of the word meek and how it's only used twice in the Scripture to describe a man, Moses and Jesus. That word being strength held in reserve. And that man who struck Christ and then what he willingly went to the cross to do just hours later. That's love. That's, the, what, that's why we've got the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For God so loved you and me. We ought to love others with that same kind of love. Verse 23, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Look in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 15. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Talking about the purpose of ministry gifts here, we see, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things. I think sometimes in our churches we can say, but speaking the truth may grow up into Him all things, which is the head, even Christ. You know, the question becomes, how do you speak the truth in love? How do you speak the truth in love? You do it when you love the people you're talking to. And we can't fake that. We can't fake it. Look in verse 16. 
from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself, period. Now, what are those last two words? It's actually one word in the Greek, in love. Moving everything in the attitude of proper love, not only for the lost person, but for the person that's sitting right next to you today. I can look out in the crowd right now and think of specific things of how I've prayed for you recently. And that's because the Bible says that I should love you. And so I bring you before the Lord as often as I remember you. May I be just honest with you? It, I, it's not as important to me how often you're here. It's not as important to me how much you learn and, and, and grow. What's important to me is that you learn to love as God has loved you. And that, that love, learning to do that, is how you'll be able to do all those things easier. If you're doing this in the, in, in, in the, the, the power of your own strength, I'm going to serve the Lord out of my own resolute. Folks, you're going to run into a roadblock at some point. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to feel inadequate. And the only person you've been training to look at, your, at, look at is yourself. I want you to see Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the, of the household of faith. I'm sure you've seen, you, you've heard this kind of attitude. Well, I'm just going to do, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing. I'm going to do my own ministry, and I'm just going to let the church be the church. It's so dysfunctional. It lacks all form. It's not doing what it was designed to do, so I'm just going to do my own thing. You know, when we take that kind of attitude, we miss what this verse says, especially unto them who are the household of faith. How are we going to encourage one another if we hate being around each other? How are we going to be able to provoke each other in love unto good works? How, how are we going to be able to do that when we never spend time with one another? So, you know, there, there's parts of me that wants to make random Sunday nights just an opportunity to sit in the pews and talk with each other. Just order some food and have a good time of fellowship with each other. Not because the teaching of God's Word is not important, but I think we can learn how to better fellowship, to better spend time with one another. Church is not just coming in and sitting in your assigned spot, folks. It's more than that. They told us when we were on the bus in Israel to sit in different spots, you know, get to meet people. Not many people did that. It's just because sometimes we're not, we're not thinking of other people, we're thinking of ourselves. Let me get to my last point here, which is when you're in the pit of despair. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, 2, and 3, and we'll look at those verse by verse. This was my last point when we were talking about victory over depression on Wednesday night. But the first point of encouragement here is, you know, when you're down in that pit, when you have been serving the Lord and the world already hates you and has casted you out and you're loving them, you're doing the best you can to reach people, but it's hard because people are hard. And when your own brothers and sisters in Christ have turned against you because you're growing and there's just things that you're doing that they're not doing and you're becoming a natural rebuke to them and you feel like you got no spot you feel like you've been taken and thrown into a pit only to see the light of day through a pinhole far, far away. When you feel like that, when you feel like there's nothing else that could be done to encourage you, I want you to remember this passage, which was written for your encouragement. The first thing is there in verse 1 of chapter 12 in Hebrews. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Who are the cloud of witnesses? I remember learning uh, early on in ministry that these cloud of witnesses were everybody that, gone on, that, that went on before. 
And they were looking at you like, you better not do that sin you're thinking about doing. They're like, you know, it, it, it was like the idea of Santa Claus seeing everything and just, I'm going to write a bad letter to Jesus about you if you do that, you know. And I really did think that because that's how it was taught to me. And that is not the correct understanding of this passage. What chapter be- comes before Hebrews chapter 12? The Hall of Faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. By faith, Moses. The things that they chose to do with their lives, they're an encouragement to us to keep on keeping on. Keep loving those that hate you. Not out of a bitterness. I'm going to love you because God said it and I, I hate you, but I love you. That's not out of that. It's the only way that you can love correctly is if you have the love of God. What is God's love? That cross at Calvary. You know he wasn't crucified on a hill. Traditionally, Jesus Christ was crucified on the side of the road outside the city. Sometimes we, we, we dramatize Calvary, you know. And that's okay. That's just how we've been taught how it is. But you know, he was just on the side of a road. Mocked. Spat upon. They didn't even want to get near him. That, that's why they had that, that, that long rod to offer him that vinegar to drink. That's how our eternal life was bought. You want to learn how to love? Love that way. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only are we to be encouraged that there are those who have gone before and didn't quit, we're also to be encouraged because Jesus Christ endured the cross for us. When we say, I'm saved by faith, I'm saved by faith alone, the next two words are, or, or, or the next words are, in Christ alone. We, our, our faith is not what saves us, it's the object of our faith. And as believers, we should learn to live lives for Him, not just for the clarity of the gospel message. We live our life for Jesus Christ. He's the one that penned it all. He's the one that brought the reason we can have faith into existence. We could all have faith in something, but without Christ dying on the cross, without Him rising again, we couldn't put our faith in Him. He's the author and He's the finisher of our faith. So not only do we have the example of those who have gone before, the example of Christ Himself, we also have verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Boy, this is an accurate description of a lot of Christianity today. We're getting tired. We're getting we're 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 growing faint. The speed in which we're walking and serving the Lord is decreasing. I always think it's interesting in Psalms chapter one how there's a, there's a progression of a man who's walking, he standeth in the way of sinners, he has counsel with them, and then he's seated in the seat of the ungodly. He's no longer moving forward. He's just plopped down, not doing anything. And if we're not careful, we're going to plop down too. Well, this is the hill I'm dying on, and I'm not moving any for, uh, forward anymore. Someone else can do it. Well, I'm glad no one had that attitude when they tried to reach you with the gospel. I'm glad no one had that attitude when they tried to reach me. Let me tell you, when I got saved, I was enough of a really, really bad kid, you know? Very disobedient, had a thing called an attitude. Ever heard of it? Just, you know, it took a long time for me to do what I was told to do. Every time I was told to clean up my room, I just pushed more under the bed and in the closet. A lot of these things described who I was, but that didn't stop my uncle from reaching me with the gospel. I didn't have to meet a certain amount of conditions before... I could be introduced to the free gift of everlasting life. Don't quit. There may be somebody that you're supposed to reach. They're, they're, they're just beyond today. Don't quit. Learn to love. And that's what I mean by looking up. We look up to Jesus. I wrote these 
last few things for you. You can close your Bible. Last few things I want to read to you here. Jesus is our everything. His endurance of the cross and position at the throne is the reason why we are who we are today. Learn, and I do mean learn, to look and lean on Him. The, the temptation is to look and lean on a hobby. I'm stressed out, I'm going to go do this hobby. Or a close group of friends. Boy, I'm really feeling bad today, so I'm going to text my group of friends, or we're going to go hang out, and that'll make me feel better. Or even our church family. I'm going to go to church. Every time I go to church, I always feel good. And then you're getting too old to do the hobby, or it's not fun anymore. The group of close friends don't really meet your need like they thought, like you thought they could, or how they used to. And you go to church and you hear a message that doesn't necessarily encourage you, but it uh, rebukes you a little bit. And the next thing you know, you find yourself ready to quit because you've put your hope in something that is not Christ. But those things pale in comparison to Jesus. Go out into the world with a smile and a song. Let the love of Jesus radiate off the words of your sentences and let it soak the deeds that you do toward others. I don't think we realize how, how life-changing a kind word can be. I love going out to eat. You can tell. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. And it's not necessarily because of the food, but it's because of the, the people that serve us. I have seen how those people are treated. I've seen how they are treated by believers. And it, it appalls me. I always try to ask, you getting off work soon? Are you at the beginning of the shift? Are you at the end of the shift? Or is it almost over? And most of the time, right around the time that I'm there, they're almost done. And right, I'm not, not going to give them the gospel right there in that moment, but I, I just tell them they're doing a good job. I'm, I'm thankful for them. The food comes out. You comment on the food. I know everyone's like, never ask when they ask you what to order, what their favorite thing is. I do that though, okay? I like to do that because as far as I know, it doesn't really bother them. And sometimes I'll order what they say just because of it, unless it's something I really don't like, like fish or something. Like, like I love you, I want to reach you, but that's crazy. <laughs> but by the end of our little sit-down, I've established some kind words. I've encouraged them on the work that they're doing so that when that track comes out, it's not just some religious pamphlet that they're trying to throw at me so they can say, I did my part. I didn't come in with a sales pitch right away trying to get into a conversation of which they have no idea what I'm talking about. Most of the time, with conversations like that, that person ends up sitting in the booth with us. And what I mean by us, it's me and my friend David. We used to do this a while ago, but ever since I've um, gotten, ever since Remy was born, we've had some other things to do in the evenings. <laughs> but we would sit, most of the time, the waiter or waitress would sit down in the booth. I sat down with a lady who had kidney failure. She was, she, she was at Walt Disney World when she found out. And we, <sighs> sorry, <laughs> get emotional. <laughs> Spent 10 minutes with her. Telling her how she can know she has eternal life. <laughs> and she got saved. <laughs> I think that's better than ranting and raving telling how people how horrible the world is and all that stuff. People know that already. They know how bad they are. No one just wants to talk about it. Man, a kind word can really change somebody's life. I want you to be the one that learns how to give kind words. Not just to the lost person, but to each other. Uh, you know, forgive me. <laughs> it's been very heavy on my heart. I see our time getting short. We're not going to be here much longer. I don't want us to get to heaven and be filled with regret. I don't want that for you. I certainly don't want that for me. And there's been some things this week that the, it's, the Lord is like, he's just really working through some, some knots, some, some things that I've built blinders to. And that's why I changed the course of my message for this morning.
We've talked a lot about the love of God. We've talked about our responsibility to share that love. It's, It's demonstrated here in the gospel. If this hand is you and me and this is sin, we all have sin, this hand represents Jesus Christ. I mean that reverently for the illustration. The very first thing that we say about John 3.16 is, for God so loved the world. How did he do it? That, that's, that the word there means this is how God is loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him. Who is the whosoever? It's the one that God loves, and that's everybody. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sometimes, folks, we obsess about the fact that it's by faith alone. It's by faith alone. It's by faith alone. Yes, that is true. But we need to remember that it's by faith alone, uh, by faith alone because God so loved. He could have made it any other way. But He made it free. <laughs> There's no other demonstration. And we see what, what Jesus says that you love one another, that you go out and bear this message. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. People want to know, how am I sure uh, sure that I'm going to heaven? How do you have all that assurance? Because God loved me and gave His Son for me, and I have put my faith, I have put my trust in Jesus Christ. That's how I know I'm saved. I've got eternal life. I've got a song to sing. I should have a pep in the old step. And I want you to have that too. But if we're not careful, we're going to build up a wall. And then the lost person comes in and the first thing we go is, ugh! Instead of, how you doing? How's it going? How's life? You find out people are going through a lot. Would have never thought that waiter is looking at kidney failure. Would have never thought. Happy, looked healthy, sits down in our booth and you find out the burden that she's bearing. And she can unload it now at the foot of the cross. I have no idea what happened to her. But I do know this. If what she said is true and she put her faith in Christ, I'm going to see her again one day and she'll have a brand new body with no kidney failure. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're here this morning and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, I know we have some new people here today and I want to welcome you. But I also, I I don't know if you have assurance of your eternal life. Maybe you've got a set of performances that you're trying to do to get to heaven. The Bible says that we're not saved by any good works. I want to encourage you right where you're sitting to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been coming to Calvary for a long time, but you've yet to believe on the Lord. Right where you're sitting, you can get saved. No one's going to come down and tap you on the shoulder. We're not going to ask you to walk down the aisle. But if the gospel message made sense to you today and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, would you raise your hand and let us know? We want to pray for you. That's the only purpose of raising your hand. Anyone before we close today? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I'm not going to ask a bunch of questions because I've just preached to you a bunch of different topics. But I want you to know that I'm praying for you to learn how to love in the way that God loves you. Folks, the only way that happens is you've got to get in your Bible. You've got to spend more time in the Word, more time in prayer. Ask, ask the Lord to help you. It'll take time, but can we commit to that? This is Calvary Community Church, and so the purpose is to reach our community. We should be willing to go out and reach whoever it is with the good news of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are still closed, I want you to know the leadership of this church loves you dearly. We want the best for you. And that's why we boldly teach the Word. Father, thank You so much for Jesus Christ. 
for the work at Calvary, for the promise that you're coming again. Lord, we do look forward to that. And I pray that as we go back to our homes and our families, that we have fresh eyes. That we have a heart that's a little more tender than when we walked in today. I pray, Lord, that the distractions around us that are teaching us hate and separation and divisiveness, I pray that those things would be silenced. And I ask, Lord, that as we get deeper into your word and begin to apply those truths to our lives, that there would be a wonderful movement here in this ministry that would reach more and more people with the knowledge of Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray these things.